we strongly urge my Republican friends in the Congress who even refused to bring up the House passed bill to bring it up now. This has to end. It's a national embarrassment. It is a national embarrassment what's going on. All right, so we just listened to President Joe Biden's speech from April 16th in which he calls gun violence a national embarrassment and urges Republicans in the Senate to at the very least go to a vote on the two bills passed in the House. These bills passed in early March do two main things. The first is the expansion of background checks, and the second is to give the FBI more time to vet gun buyers. The latter would close the Charleston loophole, a loophole that, according to the New York Times, allowed 5,800 guns to be bought without background checks in just 10 months in 2020. Unfortunately for its supporters, which is almost exactly and entirely the Democratic Party, these bills face near certain death in the 50-50 Senate chamber. Gun violence and the debate over gun control has been taken to new heights in the last few years, as death by firearm and number of mass shootings, gun deaths that occur when a lone shooter kills four or more people in a public space, have risen dramatically. According to the Bulletin of American College of Surgeons, there were 36,000-plus gun deaths in 2015, and today, gun violence continues to be a leading cause of death for people ages 10 through 24. This constitutes a public health crisis. With seemingly more and more mass shootings occurring every year, Las Vegas, Parkland, and even in this last March, Boulder and Atlanta, which claimed a combined 18 lives, to name a few, this issue feels more and more prominent, and gun legislation has become more and more supported, even across party lines. Still, opposition politically remains fierce. So, with so much going on, the question arises, how did we get here? While gun control has remained a top issue in American politics, many don't know of its origins. Yes, it would be impossible to talk about guns in America without talking about the Second Amendment, which states, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. I'm not here to go deeply into the Second Amendment, mainly because I think the Second Amendment argument, discussion, whatever you want to call it, is overplayed and overcomplicated. What's more interesting than the amendment itself, for me at least, is that the first real gun legislation was not passed until the National Firearms Act of 1934, a part of FDR's sweeping New Deal. Shortly after, in 1939, the Supreme Court set a pro-gun control precedent when it ruled in Miller v. United States that having a sawed-off shotgun or similar instrument was not necessary for, quote, keeping a well-regulated militia. Jump forward to 1993, and the Brady Handgun Violence Protection Act is passed after President Reagan's press secretary was shot in an assassination attempt on Reagan. The bill requires that background checks be completed before a gun is purchased from a licensed dealer, manufacturer, or importer. It also established the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, which is maintained by the FBI. Then, just a year later, tucked into the massive and controversial Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, signed by President Bill Clinton in 1994, is a subsection titled Public Safety and Recreational Firearm Use Protection Act. This is more simply known as the Assault Weapons Ban. So you might be wondering, if we passed an assault weapons ban in 1994, why are people still talking about it today? Well, that's because Republican opposition and lobbyists from the NRA 
forced the Democrats to add a sunset provision that gave the law an expiration date of 10 years. Well, perhaps at the time, the Democrats thought this wouldn't be an issue and they'd be able to repass the bill later, easily. This decision, this decision would come back to bite them. Following Al Gore's controversial loss in the presidential election of 2000, a Republican-controlled government ended the assault weapons ban in 2004. Today, after many attempts, any sort of assault weapons ban has failed to pass. Capping off a period of success for anti-gun control believers, the 2013 District of Columbia versus Heller case ruled that a DC handgun ban was unconstitutional. Important to note, unlike the Miller case, in which the key piece of the Second Amendment was, quote, a well-regulated militia, in Heller, the focus was on the phrase to keep and bear arms. Still, like many issues in American, pu American politics, public opinion, and the holders of power, moves and swings. And following both huge and nationally covered mass shootings, such as Parkland and Las Vegas, and also the ever so consistent but small shootings in our own backyards, a massive grassroots movement has seemed to catch fire. Organizations such as the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence, Everytown for Gun Safety, and Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America have grown rapidly, just as public opinion has grown to favor their proposed pieces of legislation. A Pew Research report shows that 89% of the country, both Democrats and Republicans, are in favor of preventing people with mental illness from purchasing guns. Additionally, 91% of Democrats and 79% of Republicans support background checks for private and gun show sales. 88% of Democrats and 58% of Republicans support creating a federal database, while 51% of Republicans and 81% of Democrats support banning high-capacity magazines and assault-style weapons. Clearly, public opinion is on the side of gun control both because of the uptake in violence, but also because of the efforts of grassroots movements and, a nation, and nationwide organizations. So the question becomes, why is it more gun, gun legislation passed, even if more than 50% of Republicans support it? We just went through a brief history of gun legislation in the U.S., as well as the current state of public opinion on various aspects of gun control. Again, courtesy of Pew Research. Still, you might be wondering, why does zero impactful legislation ever seem to pass? Like with many things in our social political system, the answer to this question is inherently nuanced. You can't explain a fiery political issue like this one without talking about dividing government. But then you can't talk about dividing government without talking about state elections and, quote, firing up the base with more extreme candidates. And then there's the constitution discussion. And with it, questions of to which degree does a U.S. citizen's individualism extend? At the same time, Supreme Court politics, a.k.a. who gets lucky with nominations and being able to pass them, come into play. However, more specific than all of this, and truly specific to gun control as an issue, is the National Rifle Association and their combination of lobbying and power over the election of U.S. officials. Founded in 1871, the group has about 5 million members. More to the point, it is among the most feared and effective players in Washington and the 50 state capitals, where it lobbies, raises money, and prepares field campaigns. The Bulletin of American College of Surgeons explains that federal firearm injury prevention research stalled due to the 1996 Omnibus Consolidation Appropriations Act. 
1996, the NRA, in reaction to CDC-funded studies demonstrating that firearm ownership was a risk factor for homicide in the home, lobbied Congress to eliminate $2.6 million from the CDC budget, the exact amount the CDC had allocated to gun violence research that previous year. Ron Elving, in an article for NPR, says that, quote, The power of the organization is legendary, especially the widely published report cards it issues giving A to F grades to lawmakers. The cards have been credited with the election, or blame for the defeat, of many a candidate. Elvin goes on to talk about how today, in a time of massive amounts of gun violence and more specifically mass shootings, the NRA follows a relatively simple response formula. Stay silent, giving brief condolences to the victims. Then, soon after, a few spokespeople, including Wayne LaPierre, the leader of the NRA, go out and start reciting a well-practiced catechism, defending his faith in guns, their use in self-protection, and the NRA view of the Constitution. That is as follows. 1. The Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear arms, and the Supreme Court has recently reaffirmed that this right applies to private individuals and not just to organized militias, but also to private individual citizens. 2. The organization lays the blame for gun violence on criminals and the producers of Hollywood movies and video games and the failures of the mental health system. Three, it reminds us that it is not possible to legislate away the evil in the world. Finally, and repeatedly, the NRA recites its mantra, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. To wrap this podcast up, I want to touch on two things. One, the dire need for your participation and support. So far in 2021, there have been four mass shootings, resulting in 30 deaths and nine injuries. Three of the four were carried out with a semi-automatic weapon. Two of the four perpetrators were mentally ill. This is from Mother Jones data. Beyond this year, nine of the last 12 mass shootings were with semi-automatic weapons. There were 10 mass shootings in 2019 and 12 in 2018. Truly, it's a national embarrassment. The second thing I want to talk about is the success of gun legislation in other countries. In Australia, the National Agreement on Firearms all but prohibited automatic and semi-automatic assault rifles, mandating licensing and registration and instituting a temporary gun buyback program. That, combined with a later instated tightening of handgun laws, uh, have been highly effective according to experts. Japan, where few guns are present and highly restrictive regulations are in place, there's the lowest homicide rate in the world. Our neighbor to the north, Canada, has stronger restrictions, following an awful shooting of their own. The legislation included a 28-day waiting period for purchases, mandatory safety trainings, more detailed background checks, bans on large-scale, large-capacity magazines, and bans or greater restrictions on military-style firearms and ammunition. These measures have been quite effective for Canada. Here's the deal. The U.S. owns 120 guns per 100 people, as of 2017. The next highest is Canada, with 35. The U.S. also has the highest homicide rate, per 100,000 people, with 4. The next highest is Israel, with 1. All of this data, including information about the countries, is from the Council of Foreign Relations.org. I also want to address some common anti-gun control talking points. Those against gun control like to point to shootings taking place in liberal areas with gun control. 
as if guns can't travel. And true, gun violence is bound to rise when times are tough for many, which is truly a whole different issue. The NRA cites the failure of mental health systems and yet supports candidates who refuse to increase mental health funding for all Americans. People love to point to the Second Amendment as if the Founding Fathers hadn't just risen against an overseas, quote-unquote, tyrannical government with muskets. In the end, I'm unsure how a decrease in guns overall and a tightening of restrictions on gun purchases could possibly make our gun violence issues any worse than they already are. Thank you.